Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome to the podcast. This is the show where we believe building a business is one of the best ways to create more personal freedom in your life. And today we're going to talk to two entrepreneurs that are on that journey. They wrote in recently when we did an episode called The Knowledge Gap Versus The Efficiency Gap. And if you don't recall, in that episode, A business that solves a knowledge gap goes into a marketplace and educates them about something that they're not doing well and sells them on a better solution, whereas an efficiency gap business goes into marketplaces that are already invested in a particular solution and helps them to do it better. Now, the guests on today's show, some of their experiences aren't in line with this dichotomy, even maybe it's not a dichotomy at all. So we might have to revisit this and flesh it out further. Maybe it doesn't work for you and your business, and that's cool. In my case, if I had the choice between the two, I have my druthers on a future business, I would choose efficiency gap, but that's not how it always plays out in real life. And that's what we're going to talk about today, real life, real stories. The first comment came from an entrepreneur named Nate Smith. And the one thing he mentioned in his comment is, he's found that pure efficiency is a little bit fragile to competition from in-house hires. So rather than just read his comment and chat on the internet, I, I wanted to call up Nate and talk about it in person. So we'll do that today. And before we do, just a little bit of background. Nate's current main business is called Admit Scout, which specializes in paid traffic lead generation for addiction treatment facilities, mostly through Facebook ads. But when I first spoke to Nate a few years ago, he was struggling to get a music training business called the 80-20 Drummer off the ground. So Nate's a musician and a drummer, by the way. And he was also working as a direct response copywriter. So we're going to get into why he made this switch to Facebook ads and paid traffic funnels. But we kicked off this conversation by talking about why 80-20 Drummer didn't quite turn into the success that he had hoped it might. I think a good way to encapsulate this is through flashback. Two years ago when you spoke to me, I was riding and dying with direct response copywriting. I was 80-20 marketing guy. I was essentially trying to transplant the drum business onto what I hoped, I guess, would be a copywriting, marketing, info product business. I wish I had gone forward in the time and listened to your podcast from two weeks ago where you guys said, yeah, you actually need a gigantic audience to monetize that. But essentially in those two years, I've gone from that to doing what I currently do, which is run Facebook funnels for rehab centers. The question is why? And so it's a three-part answer. So number one, despite the really great relationships I had, I found that when I left the bubble of first and second degree connections, the value of what I did, the legibility just nosedived. So if I'm approaching e-commerce people and saying, let me build out a direct response funnel for me, let let me optimize your conversions. It just wasn't translating. 
so it was extremely difficult to find B2B clients on a reliable basis. The second thing that I realized was that copywriting was becoming a chore. I had thought about scaling the business, hiring for it, but I realized I was staring down the barrel of this deliverable, which would be exceptionally difficult to hire for. It was sort of a craftsman trade, right? I didn't want to be doing it myself 60 hours a week. And I actually talked to some mentors who had what at the time I thought I wanted. And one of them told me, yeah, I take seven clients a year. I get 100% of my clients through referral and I work like 60 hours a week and I love it. And I was like, all right, thank you. (laughs) So the third and final thing was this idea that, and actually this didn't really pan out the way I thought it would, but I became enamored of this idea that I could simply white label the delivery of the service, that I could hire a third party contractor who was already an expert in delivering the service. And the only thing I needed to worry about was getting clients for it. And then I could just take my margin and hand it off to the white labeler. I had this dream of, I don't have to copyright anymore. I can approach small businesses with a fresh deliverable that's 100% legible to them. And if I start with a contractor who's already an expert at a service, I can just work backward from that and sell the service. That was the beginning of the learning curve and the ensuing year and a half is where a lot of the hard lessons came from those assumptions. The first thing that occurred to me when you mentioned those three things is that there are problems that a lot of businesses have and they weren't necessarily insurmountable. But it sounds like you were thinking maybe they were not strategically sound in some way. What ultimately led you to believe that those problems were terminal for that business? I think you actually put it great. And let me translate it just a little bit into my mental model, which would be hills to die on. There's no free lunch. Everything's a challenge. Which hill do you want to die on? And I did not want to die on the working 60 hours a week copywriting or having to hire for it. It wasn't important enough to me. And, you know, in the thing I'm currently doing, I'm able to do copywriting, though to a much smaller degree. But I think you have it exactly right. If I'm going to put all of this sweat equity into something, I need to optimize it better so that I don't wake up and it's three years hence and I've built myself a Rube Goldberg contraption that I hate. Was there a moment that you knew it was time to retool? Yes. So it was last winter. And I'll say that it wasn't 100% a clean break and that... I still do have a couple of copywriting direct response clients. And actually, once again, this was a conversation I had with another entrepreneur. He basically just jumped to the conclusion when I was telling him about my issues. He was like, yeah, I tried to sell copywriting for a decade. Here are the problems with it. It's not legible. People don't think it's valuable. You know, you're better off selling them something they're already paying for, et cetera, et cetera. And that was mirrored in my struggles at the time. So I actually had a moment over New Year's when I thought I had it made. I was like, I've reached my earnings goals. I've arrived where I thought I wanted to be when I started this consulting business. Except that if I looked down at my portfolio, I literally hated almost every engagement that I had. 
with a couple of shining exceptions. <laughs> and then what happened was that everyone sort of reached the end of their engagement and they no longer needed copywriting or they were higher in house. So my entire portfolio churned in a matter of about six weeks. And together with that conversation I had, I realized, so here's another thing I realized. I wanted a deliverable that had a built-in monthly renewal rationale. And that's one thing that attracted me to paid traffic. A renewable rationale. Why doesn't copywriting have that in your case? And why does paid traffic have it? Because once you turn on the funnel, you don't want to stop getting leads. If a lead gen channel is working, no rational business owner is going to say, no, I think we're good with this. We don't need as many clients. But you can add value to it because there needs to be expertise brought to bear both on the technical side and also on the creative side, like refreshing, creative, et cetera. So there's a rationale for paying a contractor a reasonable rate to keep that funnel delivering leads. Whereas with copywriting, I felt like a lot of people viewed it on a project basis. So I know that there are copywriting gigs where people just have an in-house copywriter. And I feel like I may now be privy to some of the people who in years past would have hired me for some of those gigs. I think it's a very limited number of people, especially in the internet entrepreneur sphere, people with multi-million dollar companies. Most of it happens by referral. But essentially my issue was I was treating copywriting as if I could scale it like it was a Facebook ads for pool cleaners business, which you just can't. It requires more in-person. People tend to view it on a project basis. The value isn't super legible to anyone but internet marketers, et cetera, et cetera. How does your paid lead acquisition for addiction treatment centers reframe, address these concerns. So in other words, how did you create this new conception and how do you expect it to solve these problems? It took us a while to get a foothold and we had a couple advantages. One of which was that in September of 2017, Google outlawed something like 85% of the keywords that rehab centers had been using to rank on the AdWords platform. So all of a sudden, a bunch of centers were stuck without a paid traffic platform. And it just so happened that a colleague of mine who had expertise in Facebook had expertise in running a certain type of funnel. So we thought, what the hey, let's try this with rehab. At least we'll be differentiated. And so it took six long, hard months before it was validated. And we were confident that we could get the results we said we could. And essentially, the results we deliver to treatment centers are leads with qualified insurance at an acquisition cost that's profitable for them and in a reasonably scalable, repeatable way. You're still counting on them to convert the leads into customers of their rehab center. True. And it definitely was a lesson I learned that there were certain hallmarks to the types of treatment centers who would be, number one, well-situated to appreciate the value, and number two, well-situated to convert the leads. And that wasn't 100% legible to me at the beginning. I think the thing that the paid traffic business affords me that copywriting couldn't 
is that there's enough that's templatable and repeatable and outsourceable that I could confidently hire for it, even if I'm not a hiring expert. And I could kind of bootstrap my way to a great team around it. Whereas hiring for copywriters is just a nightmare. Let's talk about this distinction called the knowledge gap versus the efficiency gap, the so-called knowledge gap versus the efficiency gap, which may not be the greatest way to say it. I'm curious as to why that episode, that distinction mattered to you. Right. So when I first heard about it, after listening to the episode, it was different than the conception I had after you explained it to me a little more in the comments. The impression I took away from that episode was that solving a knowledge gap would be bringing some sort of unique IP to bear on the market. And solving an efficiency gap would be creating value by doing something that a founder or potential client would really rather not be doing, but which you're not necessarily better at than they are. And I think what I understood after your comment that clarified things was that you were conceiving of it more to mean filling an efficiency gap would be providing a service around something that was already legible to the founder, as opposed to trying to educate them about some new thing that's not an existing KPI for their business, for instance. I should Mm. clarify it for the audience now. This knowledge gap versus efficiency gap, the words knowledge and efficiency are like incumbent terms. And so they're confusing. You helped me to sort through this. And I think we came to something better. This is like a less sexy and intriguing way. It's less alluring to say what is probably truer, which is, I think the distinction I was pointing to, Nate, was selling them more of something they already value versus convincing them to value something new. Or a correlate to that might be in the case of your copywriting business, the way you described it was that you were exploring new value with them versus augmenting existent value. I 100% agree with that. And you're absolutely right. That does track with the exact reason why I'm phased out most of the copywriting in favor of the new thing. If my experience contributes anything to this, it would be the fact that differentiation is an axis that needs to be appreciated, which I don't feel like a lot of people are talking about, either those who have built consulting agencies or in the sort of business coaching space. When you're starting a consulting service or an agency for small business, yes, we try to Venn diagram our talents with something the niche needs. But let's just start with the assumption that every niche is going to have its own challenges and there are no magic unique niches. Now, there are some entrepreneurs whose superpower is identifying overlooked niches. But I think that for most of us starting these businesses, we're going into a niche without wasting too many sleepless nights choosing it. And I think that something that gets less airtime is the fact that in most of those cases, that means that your market is already going to be familiar with what you do. So this idea that we're going to go into a new niche and they're going to be babes in the woods with the internet, number one, is false in my experience. And number two, we wouldn't want it that way because then they're not going to know how to value your service. It's not going to be legible enough to them. So we start with the assumption that we're going into a niche that already knows what you do and that that's a good thing. Now, here's the issue that I faced in real life. Not only 
are there a hundred other businesses in that niche already doing what you want to do? You're the new entrant into that niche. So that's when differentiation becomes important. And the evidence I have for this is the night and day difference in the conversations I was having in my niche between when we were doing AdWords and everyone else was doing AdWords and when AdWords went away and we were suddenly the only business situated to do Facebook ads. So I guess that's how I would encapsulate the power of differentiation. Don't let the lack of a big budget or technology skills get in the way of you having not only a beautiful website, but a powerful one that can get your product in the hands of your customers. That's where today's sponsor, Weebly.com, comes in. Weebly is the easiest way to create an incredible looking website, and you don't have to have technology skills. But more importantly, Weebly comes with a whole bunch of tools that help you sell your products, process payments, manage your inventory, and create marketing campaigns that grow your brand. And because Weebly's mission is to turn people's great ideas into successful businesses, they've built an incredible support team. So if you have a question, just pick up the phone to talk to a customer success expert. There's no scripts, there's no robots, just a friendly human who can help you grow your business. That's right. Weebly.com is the quickest way to get your idea on the internet and to simplify your business's web presence. So if you've got a product idea and want to share it with the world, check out Weebly. You can have a beautiful, powerful online store running in a matter of hours. And because you listen to this podcast, you can visit weebly.com slash TMBA and get 15% off of your first purchase. So don't just build a beautiful website and don't spend a bunch of money on it. Build a successful online business and Weebly can help. Big thanks to Nate for sharing his thoughts with me today. I actually took some notes from the conversation that won't appear in this episode for future episodes because Nate's got a, a lot of cool philosophical insights into entrepreneurship. So I appreciate his view. Another comment we got on this episode was amazing. And this listener really did not see the dichotomy between the knowledge gap and the efficiency gap. He said, you know what, Dan, not only do I think that this is not a fair dichotomy, it's not clear, but that in my case, it's totally untrue that by solving a knowledge gap, I am building a meaningful, sustainable business. Well, I'm not going to put any more words in his mouth. I had a, a real pleasure speaking with Egan Heath, who has a digital marketing agency called Get Found Madison. It's mostly aimed at businesses in Madison, Wisconsin. So it helps create leads for businesses through SEO and digital marketing. And they've created something of a niche in the senior living space. So I started out by asking Egan about his sales model and how he charges for his services. Really try to stick to a retainer model basically at different levels of how much are we doing for you? Is it the full shebang where we are doing SEO, we're blogging for you, we're running Google ads and Bing ads, we're running Google display ads, we're running Facebook ads, email marketing. You know, That would be the whole gamut of we're your digital agency, we are that wing of your marketing department. One thing we really say no to is offline stuff. That's not our bread and butter. And even within there, I think about should we be in people's MailChimp accounts? I don't know, maybe not. 
how do you sort through all that and make it something that people can buy and that you can deliver profitably? It goes back to that sales discussion of, do you have unused capacity? And so in the case of assisted living, it's we have units and they're not full, which is, you know, opportunity cost there at the least, if not expense. In other businesses, it's just we're not as busy as we could be. And so I really try to get people to quantify that and say, you know, how much are you missing out on? That should really set the bar in terms of what we budget. And so then it's, to answer your question, it's really 12-month contracts. The range is usually, I say, 5000 a month down to 1500 a month. And they should plan to have ad spend on top of that too. I think that frames it well because if you just come out of the gates and say, SEO and Google AdWords and Facebook ads are going to cost you 2500 bucks a month, people are not ready for that. At least here, a lot of people have not paid for that sort of service yet. So for assisted living clients, you're saying, you know, here's the value of getting one client in the door. It's worth a lot to you. So, you know, our packages range from 1500 to 5000 At what point is it like, okay, if you get the 1500 package, are you going to say we're going to put one person in there? If you get the 5000 package, we're going to put three people in, deliver three clients? Because you don't know the results you're going to create necessarily for these clients. Sure. I think there's always uncertainty in it, and I try, to, I try to be straightforward about that, particularly within SEO. I say this as an SEO agency owner that it's like, if you're investing you know, tens of thousands a year in SEO, it's like you do have to think about the opportunity cost of what if you just done paid ads? You could have had not necessarily more people to the website, but you could have had people to the website sooner. SEO has this lag effect where it really takes time to do well. I think keyword research is a part of that. Trailing 12 months, average per month, how many people search for assisted living, senior living, memory care. What's interesting is looking at Google Trends or even just doing the keyword research year over year, it's more and more. And this is a, it's really a big industry and it's going to be for the next 10 years. So I'm, I'm trying to basically pivot to that for that reason. There's definitely risk on their end. What was nice about this big client I had, and I certainly stumbled into it, a referral partner that builds websites says, oh, you need SEO? Go talk to Egan. The COO of this company had just learned what that was from her director of sales when she said, hey, we're not on page one. What's the deal? And he says, oh, you need SEO. And she says, what's an SEO? So she kind of went to my referral partner family. So it really fell in my lap and I really lucked out. But it was also following this sales process that I was able to make it a big contract and deliver. I really try to get into what is a lead worth to you? What is a new sale worth to you? And so in senior living, what we found is it's 3500 a month minimum and residents stay for 18 months, 24 months. In a lot of cases, it's 5000 a month minimum. So what we figured for in terms of risk assessment for her, she's like, if you get me one new resident, <laughs> we will break even on this project. I was starting off with clients at, you know, 250 and $500 a month trying to sell more haircuts, and it just didn't make sense. It was a combination of the leads are worth a lot, and there is a knowledge gap in this industry. There's no way around that for me. So that's kind of why I'm defensive on this point. Yeah, let's talk about it. So when we were talking about this knowledge gap versus efficiency gap, the poorly named, what was your emotions when you were listening to that episode? So I'm just going to jump in here and read a portion of the comment that Egan left just for context. And I quote, let me just say the knowledge gap in the senior living space is intense. Multiple owners, CEOs, and COOs of multi-million dollar companies in the industry have asked me, what's the difference between a browser and a search engine? Actually, when I asked them what search engine they use, they said Safari or Internet Explorer. One community director told me she only used the internet once, and that was to apply for her job. Seriously. 
So squeezing more efficiency out of my clients' existing assisted living units would be one thing, but increasing their occupancy by 11.8% made them something on the order of $3.9 million in new revenue, much of which was profit because their fixed costs were already covered by the occupants they already had. The owner then sold the company, I'm guessing on a decent multiple of those now higher annual profits. Were they ever going to handle this in-house? I can quite confidently say no. The CEO learned about SEO the same week she hired my agency. Could they have found someone who would have charged them less to get similar results? Yes. But if they saw that multifold ROI, do they really care? I think for me, it was because I've stumbled into this niche. And again, I'm at, you know, 600, 700 days out of the thousand days on my journey. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe efficiency still is better, but there's such a knowledge gap here. There's so much potential value that I'm convinced that this is a business here. I've seen it work. And when I got this big senior living client, they were 10 X what my other clients were and they were not 10 X work. The results were better for them than they were for any of the others. And so there's just this light bulb going off. I'm leaning into that knowledge gap and really finding value there. And I think my my client did too, and I think future clients will as well. That's kind of my thought is when you're dealing with people in their 60s that are about to retire, we can't expect them to bring SEO in-house, even to hire a millennial or someone to do their SEO. It, It doesn't make sense. They wouldn't necessarily know how to do that. Have you heard of other agencies having similar success with industries that do not invest in SEO? There's obviously, there's got to be tremendous opportunities in businesses that have a high lifetime value of a customer that have traditionally not invested in this channel because they had other channels that work just fine. I basically am friendly with my competitors here in town and they've been doing this longer than I have and they're kind of... They're to the point where they don't take clients if it's not on WordPress or we're not switching to WordPress as their website platform. And if people don't get it, they're not going to preach and try to educate. I know that came up in the episode and Ian was really like, you go ahead and educate. I'll swoop in and sell a better thing later. I know that I'm in education mode because I'm going to speak at assisted living conferences and it's pretty new stuff. And the seats are not as full as I would like them to be in every session, but the people who are there are pretty intrigued is kind of what I'm finding. So there's definitely market education going on. And, and once once I have a client, so I do have a senior, a new senior living client now, the education continues. And it's not that I want to keep them in the dark. It's not that I don't want them to learn. The reality is, like you said, they're busy. The value in their business comes from somewhere else. Even if they could learn this on a blog post, they're not going to. They don't know what they don't know. That's fascinating. Your dummy up thing worked really well in this case because it just forced me to be more specific about what I was trying to express. If I insist on continuing to use the term knowledge gap, then it breaks down pretty quickly. Basically, I think that's what you pointed out. What I'm suggesting is that this company is set up to value people in assisted living homes. And essentially, that's what you're selling them. If you go in there, and you sell them Facebook ads or whatever, it feels to me like you've solved this issue with your sales approach by positioning. Maybe so, yeah. I think that's the correct language to be using anyway. Because if you just say, we'll get you up there on Google, everyone's going to ask, what's the ROI of that? How do I know? Like, How do I care? And it's there really are estimates you can do. You can say, in Wisconsin, I know the data, it's 1,900 searches a month. 
for assisted living in Wisconsin. If you're in that top spot, you're getting 30-ish percent of the clicks. It's complicated by AdWords now, but, you know, that's kind of the idea. And then almost half, half, half all the way down, something like that. You can even project on, depending on where we're at, we can even estimate how many more people come to the site. Of the people that come to the site, how many contact us. Of the people that contact us, how many move in. You can sort of get them thinking in, in funnel terms, which is, you know, very basic to marketers or online marketers who would be listening. But... In this world that I'm working in with these folks in senior living, they're really caregivers. They're there first and foremost to care for the elderly, and they often have nursing backgrounds and medical backgrounds. And this sort of sales language, it's not foreign, but it's a new a new way of thinking for them. Right. But the thing that's not a new way of thinking for them is that their business succeeds if people are in the buildings. And essentially, that's what you're bringing to the table. And maybe I'm getting fast and loose with my terms here, but what you're bringing to the table in that sense is efficiency. As you're saying, you guys are all set up. Like everything you do here is about having people in these buildings. That's what you value. That's what everybody is doing. Now I'm coming to the table and I'm bringing people to the buildings. Whereas if you go to them and you say, what you guys need to be doing is something different, which is what I'm doing get on the page with this. You guys need to have funnels. You guys need to do these things. That's the mistake that I see people making essentially. Yeah. It seems like a tricky dichotomy then if any sort of knowledge gap can sort of be squeezed into an efficiency issue if we speak the client's language. To me, it's like if my situation here is not a knowledge gap, I'm having trouble picturing one. I'm not telling them, hey, you should do, you guys should get out of senior living. You should have home care or something like that you're an assisted living facility, you should become skilled nursing rehab or something like that. I'm not coming in saying you guys should have a whole new plate of services you're selling, but there is, you know, modern processes you could be using to be filling those. It's interesting because most of the ones I talk to seem to be happy at 80 some percent capacity, which is we're making a little profit, not too much. And when you go from 80 to 90 some percent, it's almost all profit. And when you go from 90 some percent to hundred percent, we're on wait list that's in expansion territory. We're adding units. We're adding new locations. I think the savvy owners get that. A lot of the other folks I'm talking to in the industry are just not thinking that way. You really have to go to the top to get to the business-minded folks there and speak that language. Is there any other things that you're noticing that separates a good customer from a bad one or a profitable one from a bad one? For me, SEO is not something where I disappear in a dark room and in two months you're at the top. It should be part of everything you're doing. And I think smart marketers know that in general of marketing should be tied in with sales and operations and HR and everybody. The same is true of SEO in terms of the people who are on the front lines at specific senior living facilities, in my case, they're hearing people's questions and those questions should make it back to the blog. Those questions should make it back to video content we're creating. And so I need clients where it's we're both working on this together. I can use maybe some of my project management background to sort of set the goals. Here's what we're doing month by month. Here's the milestones. I would suggest in almost any industry, it's problematic to just completely outsource SEO because if you're in whatever business, you are the subject matter expert in that. And whatever content marketing your SEO agency is going to do for you, it's going to be lacking unless they're getting that subject matter expertise out of your head and onto the blog or the video. Is that ultimately a pain in the ass for you or is that a good thing because it improves your relationships with them? I think it improves the relationships and that's a huge piece. And I think that was missing from the episode too, in terms of 
we're done with a year-long project, client finds out, hey, you learned all this on a blog or something or a YouTube channel, we could have done this ourselves, we could have hired someone cheaper. It's really not the experience. And even with clients who have had not the tremendous ROI that this assisted living client had, it really does build a relationship and they're happy to sort of think of you as part of their marketing team. When you build relationships, that in itself is valuable. And if you hit a hard period and something's going on where you're not bringing in as many leads one month, that can smooth that over in terms of, you know, we're meeting with you, we see what you're working on, we understand what you're working on, which is a challenge in itself. And we appreciate how you help us articulate the value of what we do. I have a client that's a chiropractor, a client that's a cleaning company. To get them to speak this language of, don't talk about you. I've, I've got one where they move huge things. <laughs> they do rigging and hauling. And on their homepage, they've got a picture of their great-grandma. And it says, we go back to 1888. And the first thing I said was, we're not going to be talking about you. We need to talk about the customers, what they're here for, and what they're looking for. That's interesting. So you're ultimately like sort of forwarding on this sales intuition that you're building to them helping them improve their business. Because it could ultimately be a problem for you that you guys kind of have to go together because if they're not able to increase their capacity effectively, you can't keep sending them more leads if they can't keep growing their business. It's interesting. People a year ago said no to me. I've got to get the bottom of my funnel taken care of. We need a CRM. We need a way to make sure my staff knows how to close sales before we get your services. It's hard for me to disagree with people on that. You need your sales processes in order before you really crank up the marketing machine. In sales meetings, I ask, okay, you guys are at 75%. What would it mean to be at 100%? What's the difference in revenue and profit? And also, if you got to 100%, could you expand to 125%? You know, that's kind of what I try to ask. You know, are there any realities of being an entrepreneur that you wish were better expressed in the online community that talks about this stuff? The thing, and this is just my experience. Again, I'm not in Chiang Mai. I'm local in the States and I'm meeting people at networking events. I'm speaking at local events. So it really is a face-to-face thing for me. So that relationships piece of it is huge. If I tried to go and start a digital marketing agency from Chiang Mai serving U.S. customers, if I try to do that from scratch, I don't think I know how to do that actually. I could try to transition this into that, but that's kind of a different beast versus a lot of my clients value the we shake hands in person and they meet me at this office. Any parting shots you want to say to listeners of the show? I feel like I'm two-thirds of the way through that thousand days, and so it is possible. And you, just like in 4-Hour Workweek, he talks about you have to skill up. That piece of the book, The E-Myth Revisited, you know that one? Yep. Even when you have skills, you've got expertise. Being a business owner is a different thing. You need to know how to do marketing. You need to know how to do sales. You need to understand the accounting, invoicing, client relationship pieces. That's my experience is you just have to always be skilling up. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Tell me about your second business. What are you doing starting a second business already? <laughs> I did not start it. I bought it in a way that I learned from Tropical MBA. No way. Yeah. Listen to that episode. I was driving from some client. It was a multi-hour drive. And I was listening to the episode about, I think it was after you guys sold the business. And I don't know if you did owner financing, but at some point you talked about that as an option. And so I have a good friend who was my roommate in Minneapolis, and he started a business called Splendid Beast, which is really more in the four-hour workweek style. It's custom oil paintings of pets. Nice. And it's really fun. You should definitely check it out. He was teaching English in South Korea, took a holiday in Vietnam, 
had his portrait done, and it's a really funny portrait he still has on his wall. Got scratching his chin and struck up a deal with the painters. So basically, you know, people send in images of their cats and dogs and all kinds of other animals, tell us how they want them painted. He would do the mock-ups and then have the painters do it. And he was going to close it down, and I said, the hell you are. Splendid Beast must live on. So <laughs> we struck a deal basically like based on, you know, what you guys talked about, I think, in that episode of I'm going to pay you down over the course of 30 months out of revenue from the business, and I'm going to take it over, and I'm presumably, hopefully, going to grow it with this. He was a graphic designer, and I'm a digital marketer, so I want to sell more pet paintings, basically. Wow, that's fantastic. So you offered him an opportunity that didn't otherwise exist. Yeah, and I I screwed up because he said later, I would have given it to you for 500 bucks. You know, yeah. <laughs> he didn't know what it was worth, and I told him, dude, you've got, there's this whole world of empire flippers and stuff where you've got an online business. This is what people want. You have an asset, and you're just talking about closing it down. You should sell this thing. So he shopped it to a broker a bit and looked at those things. Nobody wanted to bite, and so I said, I'll, you know, we can hammer this out on our own. How's it going? I have to confess, I have not paid myself yet. I was talking with Nathan. He commented on the previous episode, and he was talking about, it's really difficult to anticipate you know, where entrepreneurship is going to take you. One of the things in the digital marketing world is that you get to see all these businesses and how they operate, and then you become an expert at arguably the most powerful part of a business, which is bringing in revenue. And so you're in an interesting position to sort of do this again, acquire a client, buy a business, partner with a client. A lot of times what I've seen in businesses is that if you have a really strong marketing channel, that's worth a lot more than the operation. You could look at it with Splendid Beast, for example. You know, Say the website's doing really well. Would you rather lose the website and the client list or the relationship with the painter? You, know, you can go recreate the painter, but it's really hard to recreate thesplendidbeast.com. Yeah, we've got a couple suppliers. One in Vietnam, it's a group of painters there, and then one in China. They just do incredible work. I've actually struck up a third LLC with my sales coach, <laughs> and it's called Splendid Buck. And we're kind of looking at the hunting space in terms of you could get an oil painting of you know you with your trophy buck, basically. He's a hunter, so he knows that space better than I do. It's a big thing in Wisconsin, you know. It's very profitable. So, <laughs> I think spinning off the Splendid franchises, of you can get different kinds of portraits, different kinds of oil paintings, that's a possibility. I'm glad you guys hammer on this, and I think Ian talks about a lot of, if you're not adding value somewhere in the chain, like you're not going to be getting paid. And so my value in the Splendid painting endeavors, whatever they are, and at this point it's Splendid Beast, in the future it could be other ones, I need to level up. I need to up the market. I need to increase those e-commerce sales. That's where I provide my value. It's a little interesting when I'm having beers with people in Madison and I describe it, they're sort of like, so what do you do? I get that a lot. And I'm, that still rankles me a bit. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm taking on all this risk. I'm paying off, man, you know, depending on how many beers I've had, <laughs> I sort of keep it to, I handle the e-commerce website. I handle the project management of it. And I handle the marketing and the sales. But when you had a lot of beers, what do you say? I think it's just, screw you, you're an employee. You don't understand what it's like to own a business. <laughs> <laughs> Egan, I've said that exact same thing over dinner to somebody at some point. Well, congratulations, Egan. Thanks for sharing your story on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor, and it's, it's really meant a lot to listen to it, and to be honest, it's just really exciting for me. Very cool. Well, I hope 
We encourage future comments. When you comment on our episodes, good things happen. (laughs) I hope you heard it, folks. I absolutely love these conversations. It's really rewarding to put out a podcast like this and get such smart people responding to the ideas and sharing their real lived experience. It's pretty awesome talking to people with skin in the game and both really, really sharp entrepreneurs. Thanks guys again for your thoughts. I was going to respond and refine some of my ideas because they really got challenged. And you know, a couple of things I realized is these words, knowledge and efficiency, they're confusing. It's not a good way to talk about it. And the dichotomy itself was challenged. And, you know, instead of doing that, it's like, I don't want to do it for a couple of minutes here. I think I'm going to save it for another episode and continue to have the conversations because Ian and I ended up talking about this quite a bit. And we looked at a bunch of different business examples. So I'd love to hear from you on it. What do you think? Email me directly, dan at tropicalmba.com. Leave us a voicemail at slash voicemail or comment on this episode at tropicalmba.com slash knowledge versus efficiency revisited. Love to hear from you. And we're going to continue to tell stories about how different entrepreneurs are out there seeing success in different ways. I mean, that's the one thing I want to be clear about is like, you can't argue with success. So you build your business however you can get it done. Hope this episode gave you some inspiration, some food for thought, maybe even something to implement in your business today. And as always, we'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.